Go ahead and grab a seat, grab your Bible, and I invite you to open it up to Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. And uh, what we're going to study together tonight is on page 981, if you got one of our Bibles, Philippians 2, 19, all the way to the end of the chapter. And in this passage, Paul is going to say some personal comments about Timothy, his true son in the faith, and about Epaphroditus who brought him the the financial gift and the encouragement from the Philippian church while he is in prison. And so what we have, these words here in the middle of the book of Philippians seem more personal. Paul talking about the guys that are there with him, how they're doing ministry together. And I just got to warn you right now that as I was reading and preparing for our time in the word tonight, I read a pastor who preached on this passage and he said, this is a pretty simple text. There's not a lot of treasure to dig for here. And when I read that, I took it as a personal challenge. All right. So uh, we believe here at Compass Bible Church Huntington Beach that this entire book is inspired by God, that it is living and active And it is profitable for teaching that he equips the man of God for every good work. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? And so we are going to hear what God has to say for us tonight. And there is treasure aplenty to be found. All right. So out of respect for God's word, let's all stand up and let us read this scripture together. And let us give it our full and undivided attention that we might hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us, and it might change our lives. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed. Because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That ends the reading of God's word. Please grab your seat. And so you can see our passage here, verses 19 to 24, is clearly about Timothy and how he's thinking about sending Timothy, but he's not going to yet because he wants to see what happens there when he's in prison. And then verses 25 to 30 are him saying he is going to send Epaphroditus. And he really describes both of these men. 
See, if you have this picture of the Apostle Paul just going out by himself on missionary journeys, planting churches, leading people to Christ, getting persecuted, the Apostle Paul never went out by himself. He was actually brought up encouraged by a man named Barnabas, who's really the guy that got Paul going on these missionary journeys. And then he always had guys that he was training up who went with him. And Timothy, he refers to as his son in the faith. Look what he says in verse 20. Let's just look at these two guys that he introduces. And let's try to pay attention to how he describes them. Here in verse 20, he gives Timothy a a huge compliment when he says that he's a unique, helpful person. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So this guy, Timothy, he is, there's nobody like him as far as how helpful he is, that he really cares about other people and not just the things of himself. In fact, look at the value that Paul places on him in verse 22. You know, even they knew because Timothy was with him in Acts 16 when they went to Philippi. You know Timothy's proven worth. You know his value. You see what he brings to team Jesus. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So there's nobody like him. He's like my son. I'm like his father. And just notice how Paul, with his words, he's lifting these guys up and he's giving them such value. Look what he says about Epaphroditus in verse 25. He refers to him as his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier. Uh, And Epaphroditus was the guy who came from Philippi to Paul. And remember, they had partnered with Paul by bringing him a financial gift to support him while he was in prison in his need. And on this journey, which could have been quite a long trip that Epaphroditus had to do to go from Philippi to where Paul is in prison, Epaphroditus clearly got sick and almost died on this journey. But now Paul says he's healthy, he's ready to go back And he says this about him in verse 29. He says, receive him in the Lord with all joy. And then he gives this kind of command here to the Philippian church. He says, honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So he says about Timothy, hey, you guys know his proven worth. And he says about Epaphroditus as he sends him back that you should receive him with joy and you should give him a position of honor. So point number one, let's get it down right like this. We need to value the servants at church. Value the servants at church. When you see somebody using their gifts to build up the body of Jesus, when you see people making disciples, passing on the gospel, encouraging one another. We should hold that in high esteem. We should really think that's something worth doing with your life. That's something that really matters. Giving your life away for Jesus Christ, giving your life away to other people at church, we should think there's something worth doing. The people who do that, 
They have a position of, of value and honor here among us. And so we might think of these guys as like the sidekicks to the Apostle Paul, but that's not the way that he's talking about them. He's talking about like, this guy's really, you know his worth. This guy, you guys should honor him. Like these guys are making ministry happen. They are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should really esteem these men and really value them because they add value to the church. So Paul was always looking for laborers, co-workers, fellow soldiers. He was always looking for people he could partner with. And it turns out that Paul regularly was having a hard time finding reliable servants of Jesus Christ to help him in the churches that he planted build up the believers. There was never enough servants to build up the church. Never enough evangelists to keep going and planting more churches. In fact, one of the saddest things that the Apostle Paul says is in his last letter, 2 Timothy, that when he had to stand to defend himself, when he was on trial before Caesar, no one stood with him. No one stood by him to defend him. Some of his helpers, his co-workers, had deserted him. And so, Paul, he values people who serve. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and you need to see that this is a theme in the writing of Paul. This is a way that he thought. Let's go to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, page 962, if you can turn there with me. And you'll see here that this is regularly what he's saying, this kind of statement. Now, it's interesting in Philippians, it's in the middle of the book. A lot of times it's at the beginning or especially the end of the book. And it might be the part of the book, if you're being honest, where once we get to personal greetings, uh, we just kind of skip over that part because I don't know any of those people and their names are hard to pronounce. Anybody ever been there before? Can we get honest here at church, right? But actually, if you really study the way, if you dig for treasure in the way that Paul talks about other people, you'll really learn a lot. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. He says, now I urge you, brothers. So he's not just giving out greetings and shout outs and, hey, what's up, tagging people on Instagram here. He's doing more than that. He's, he's saying, here's how you should be thinking. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. They were the first people to get saved. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So be subject to such as these. Put yourself willingly underneath the leadership of these people. Put, put yourself humbly like they have authority over you. Submit yourself to them. And to every fellow worker and laborer. You see somebody who is uh, working and doing gospel work, evangelism. They're leading a fellowship group. They're serving in the college age, high school age, junior high age ministry. You see somebody doing service, value that person, esteem that person. Look, hey, you should think of every fellow worker and laborer as somebody. Hey, that guy's really doing something. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people 
And the word there, recognition, really means you should know the ways of such people. You should become acquainted with the ways of such people. You should really look to those kind of people who are really doing something to serve the Lord at the church. You should see them as examples and you should become recognized in their ways. You should hold these people in high regard. I mean, we had something that was really remarkable that happened. We had uh, basically uh, so many young people at these camps and we got people given everything they got, people taking a week's vacation so they can go and lead young people to Christ. Or some of them aren't even right there in the trenches with the students talking about the gospel day in and day out. Some of them are out in the Lake Havasu or Palm Springs heat setting up games. Some of them are just trying to make enough food for all those hungry mouths. Some of them were trying to make sure they're medically safe and, and bandaging them up if they, if they had an injury while they're at camp. Some people are serving tech or worship. I mean, people are working hard to the point of exhaustion to serve. And we should hold that in high regard. You went to the camp. You went to serve those high schoolers. We shouldn't look down at that like, oh, you were out there at at church camp with the young people. What were you doing out there playing games? We should say, wow, you're out there trying to teach the gospel to the next generation. You're out there giving of yourself and treating others as more important. We should recognize that. We should value that. In fact, if you went to one of those two camps, will you stand up right now so we can just show you our appreciation in a small way by giving you a round of applause and saying thank you right now. Look at these people. You should recognize them. You should get to know their ways. Thank you very much for what you did this week. That is something that we value. Uh, I guarantee you these camps can only be as good as the leaders who are there running them. Our youth groups can only be as good as how many people we have in them discipling the young people. That's what it comes down to. Your, your ministry can only be as good as the people who are leading the ministry, serving in the ministry. And when you got somebody who's doing something for the Lord, you should, you should really recognize that and esteem that. Go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, a few pages over to the right here in our New Testament. There's many passages we could turn to just on this idea of how we should think about people who serve in official ways in the church, how we should value them. Uh, there's, a, there's so much skepticism today, and some of it is, is rightly so, because there's been so many pastors in it for their own profit. There's been so many false teachers, so many pastors who have fallen in sin, even so many small group leaders and youth group workers, and so many people who have done the wrong thing and been hypocrites, even knowing it, deceiving people about their real intentions and being involved in the church. So I understand if you've been burned by churches before. I understand if you've seen the hypocrisy of people falsely leading in the church before. But you need to see what the Bible says about how we should still serve in the church and how we should hold leaders in the church in high regard. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, this is page 988. If you got one of our books, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Show them respect. And notice, it doesn't even say those who have positions over you, maybe, in the church, but even those who are just doing work among you, your peers in the church, people side by side with you. Respect them. (coughs) 
They are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And verse 13, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. These are people that you and I should have a high opinion about. We should love them. We should thank them for their work. Not that they're trying to please us. Nothing like that. We're not. We're serving the Lord. We're not here to please people. But when we serve the Lord, the people of the church, they should respect that. They should love that. They should esteem that. That's what Paul does with Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's what you and I should be doing for the people that you see faithfully serving to build up the church here. And even while we have a valued person like Marwan here among us this weekend, we should hold them in high regard. We should esteem them in love. Now go back to uh, go back with me to Philippians chapter two, verses 19 to 30. And let's keep digging for treasure. Are you guys with me? Are you ready to get your shovel out? Keep digging because uh, supposedly I should just close this in prayer right now because there's not a lot to offer here in this passage. That, I really did not appreciate that. Look at verse 19. All right. Something that's so simple yet so profound right here in verse 19. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So the whole Paul, here's Paul's thinking, okay? Glimpse into the mindset of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing this. If I send Timothy to you guys, Timothy, who's my true son in the faith, will then come back to me, and then I'll hear how you guys are doing, and that'll encourage me. That's what he's saying right there, all right? He's saying he is a fan of the good news report. He's tired of the negative news, the biased news. He wants to hear... The good news. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Do we want to hear the good news? He says, I want to hear how you guys are doing. Now, this is really interesting. Look what it says, that he would be cheered by news of you. The word for cheered there, it's the word suke in the Greek with the prefix there, ooh. So it literally means good soul is a way you could think of it. When I hear how you guys are doing, when I hear about people getting saved, when I hear about people growing up in their faith, churches being planted, I have good soul when I hear news like that. That's what he's saying. When I know about that, that's really the word here for news is when I know what God's doing in other places, when I know what God's doing with other people, it, it's well with my soul. That's the way you could translate that cheered there. It, it does well with my soul when I hear about God's good news with other people. Here's a couple of Proverbs you could write down. Proverbs 25, 25. Proverbs 25, 25. It says, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And, and hey, ask anybody who was in Palm Springs or Lake Havasu how awesome water is right now, right? Uh, they, I, I had a meeting with the people at the hotel in Lake Havasu. And praise the Lord, they want us to come back next year so we can be praying for that. Very exciting. And they're like so excited. They're like, there's like these people working there at the hotel. They're like giddy with the excitement. They're like they're doing one of these. And, and I'm like, wow, what's going on? And they're like, well, we ordered in a good day for you here at Lake Havasu. It's only going to be 106 today, you know, and they're like doing this little dance. And I'm like, look, do you know where I'm from? I'm from Huntington Beach. I, there's no way I could sell my crew on guys. It's a good day. It's 106. Like nobody's buying that one. You know what I mean? 
Um, so that they were just all uh, excited. Hey, cold water when you're out there in the heat, you're thirsty, you're parched. We had some young people get dehydrated because they didn't listen to the medical uh, team telling them drink lots of water, right? Um, man, that's what good news is like. See, a lot of times we hear so many negative things. In fact, some of us, we pay a lot of attention to the negative news of this world. But you hear a little bit of good news. A little bit about God building a church in a Muslim country in the Middle East like Lebanon. All of a sudden your soul starts feeling like you got good soul going on, right? It's well with your soul. Proverbs 15.30, you could write that down. Proverbs 15.30. It says, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart. When you see something that's good, when you see somebody you love, that causes you joy. But then also it says, and good news refreshes the bones. Good news refreshes the bones. See, we need to hear how other people, Christians in other parts of the world, or even maybe some of our Christian brothers and sisters right here at our church. Maybe they've been on a trip during the summer. Maybe we don't see them during the week all the time. And we got to get together purposefully to hear how they're doing. And when they tell us what God's doing, the good work that he's doing in their life. So there's something about hearing God's work in his people that brings you encouragement. That refreshes you. The idea here in Proverbs 1530 is it refreshes the bones or it makes fat the bones is the idea, right? It plumps you up is the idea a little bit here. It gives you some gives you some life, gives you some some meat on the bones. It's like, yes, that's really encouraging. Wow. Who, who's knowing that in all that we hear about what's happening in the world today and all of the death and all of the ways that people are denying God his glory and sinning against him and taking so much pride in their sin and all the ways that mankind hates one another and is at one another and is killing one another. You hear about young people getting saved and churches being planted and you think, hey, that actually feels pretty good that's what paul wanted to send timothy for he wanted the good news wanted to hear what god is doing among his people now when he's gonna send epaphroditus look what he says in verse 29 verse 29 he says so receive him in the lord with all word there it's right behind me what's the word there oh that's our theme right there of the whole book of the whole summer Okay, so what we need to see is that our theme verse is to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, right? That's our theme verse for this whole study. But here's something you need to see. While we focused on the joy comes from the Lord, it's more than emotions. It's more than circumstances. It's an eternal relationship. Knowing Jesus is better, which we're really going to get into in chapter three. What you also need to see is that Paul's joy clearly goes up when he's around other Christians. Go back to chapter 2, verse 2. Look at how he started this chapter. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So he's got joy. The joy is in the Lord, but his joy can be made full. His joy can be completed when the believers come together and they're all fellowshipping together. He knows that the Philippians are not divided 
but they're dwelling together in unity, partnering for the gospel, encouraging one another and building each other up. That's going to take his joy even more. It's going to make it more complete. Look at what he said in verses 17 and 18, what we left off last week. He said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, even if I'm given my life and it's being poured out upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, if my life being poured out is making an impact on your faith in Jesus, then I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So we see that Paul's joy increased when the people were united. And his joy increased when he thought about giving his life for the purpose of other people, that that joy was something they could share. And so now he says here, verse 29, hey, I'm ascending Epaphroditus to you. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Right. Go back to verse 28. He says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. He knew the day Epaphroditus set foot back in Philippi and gave them the full report. They were going to be like, wow, you almost died. Tell us about what God did. Wow, you saw Paul and Timothy. Tell us, how are they doing? Okay, we heard the letter. Wow, that was an amazing letter that Paul wrote to us. Tell us more, Epaphroditus. What's going on? It's so good to see you. See, see, we, we lose that idea sometimes today. Like, I need to go to church because when I see other Christians and I get to hear how they're doing and we get to catch up, we get to encourage one another. I have joy in the presence of other Christians. Do you believe that? Point number two, let's get it down like this. Find joy in the people of Jesus. You need to find joy in the people of Jesus. There's something about hearing about them when you can't even see them. But then to get to be in their presence, there's a joy. He says here, find joy, receive him with all joy. That's a way that we should be thinking. Oh, we get to gather together. I find joy in being with other people who believe in Jesus, hearing what they say, hearing how their faith is growing. That brings me joy. It increases the joy that I have in Jesus. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 3, and you'll see this same idea here. 1 Thessalonians 3, just a few pages over to the right. 1 Thessalonians 3. <laughs> he's really, in this chapter, he's really concerned about what's happened to the Thessalonians because he got torn away from them. He had to leave them sooner than he wanted to. And so he's wondering what's going on with these guys And he says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Do you see what Paul's saying there? I wanted to hear how you guys in Thessalonica were doing so badly that I would rather have Timothy go and get the report from you and then bring it back to me so I could have good soul. It could be well with me hearing about your faith that I was okay with being alone in Athens so that you could get give me a report through Timothy. 
I mean, you could read about that in Acts 17, where Paul is alone in the Areopagus preaching about an unknown God. That's because he sent his true son in the faith back to Thessalonica to find out if they were still trusting in the Lord, still maturing in their faith. The church was still being built up. He would rather hear how they're doing than make sure that he was doing okay by having Timothy with him. Look what he says in verse 6 when Timothy returns. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news report from Thessalonica, coming in hot, the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. I'm having a hard time over here, but I heard how you're doing in your faith over there. And that brought me good soul where I am just hearing about how you're doing. And he says this in verse eight, you might want to write this verse down, underline this, write it down here for now. We live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, one of the reasons that people in orange County and LA County don't have a lot of joy is they're looking for it in themselves rather than finding it in other people. It's one of the big problems. Go to your own castle, drive in your own car, look at your own devices, and interact with people less and less. Is that making us more happy here in America or more miserable? See, we've got these things called fellowship groups, and they're really uh, so important here at our church. They really are the fellowship of our church. When we gather together on the weekend like this, we gather together to speak to God in praise and to hear God speak to us in his word. When we gather together throughout the week in small groups, we look at one another and we speak encouragement to one another. And we all take what we heard from God and we encourage one another to apply it to our lives. And I can't tell you, and you've probably felt it too, on nights where you're tired, it's been a long day, maybe a long week, maybe it's been a long year. And here you are going to that fellowship group and that thought comes through to your mind, maybe I'll miss fellowship group tonight. Anybody ever thought that thought before? Some of you have acted on that thought before. It wasn't just a thought turned into an action, right? And then sometimes you think that and you just feel done, right? I mean, well done, you know what I mean? And you're ready to go and just relax, just get something to eat, just maybe go straight to bed. And you go to the fellowship group and you see so-and-so. And then that that person in your group says that silly thing that they always say. And then somebody starts really bringing it on question number two. And then somebody comes up to you and you tell they this person cares about me. They've been praying for me. And all of a sudden, when you come out of the fellowship group, you're not even tired. You're energized. You're not feeling down. You're feeling up and your joy has been made complete in the presence of God's people. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? That's what happens. When you get around God's people, when you hear how God's people are doing, there's a good news report. He's having a hard time, but there's comfort to be found in the good news of what God's doing in other people. We got to get outside of ourselves. That's that's the trap that we're all falling into is we're thinking, how do I feel tonight? The beauty of being a part of a fellowship group is how you feel doesn't matter anymore. How's everybody else doing? That becomes more important. And so we're starting fellowship groups. It's been a long summer break 
Who's ready to get back to fellowship groups this week? And if you're not clapping, if you're not excited, go talk to Pastor Daniel right after the service and get into a fellowship group. And maybe you need to confess you have a wrong attitude about your fellowship group. And you're not thinking those people are designed by God to bring you joy when we all come together. We get to rejoice with all joy in each other's presence. Turn with me to 2 John. Let's go to 2 and 3 John. Often overlooked books here towards the end of your New Testament. The Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he, he wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, Revelation John, we, uh, Revelation, he wrote that one, right? Uh, but we often overlook 2 John and 3 John. And you know what he spends most of his time doing in these short one-chapter letters? Is he just tells people how much he loves them, how much he's excited about them. Look what he says in 2 John, verse 12, final greetings. Ah, skip over that. Don't need to read the final greetings. That's to a bunch of people that are all dead now. That's not to me. I'll just skip that part. Is the word of God alive or is it written to dead people? You've got to make that decision in your own heart. Though I have much to write to you. Look what he says. Though I have much to write to you. Well, that's, that's what you would say when your whole letter is only 13 verses, right? Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. The reason I'm not going to write it. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. I'm not settling for a long distance relationship with you guys. I love you. I want to get face to face. I want to see you. And that's when we're going to experience complete, full joy when we're together. See, this is what people miss out on when they say, I'm going to go worship God at the beach. I'm going to go worship God in the golf course. I'm going to go worship God in the mountains. Yeah, but here's the thing. God said he was meant to be worshipped in the plural, not the singular. He wants people to come together. There's something about the joy of the multitude going into the house of the Lord. That's different than when you go to the Lord personally. They both have their place. But there's a joy of being among God's people. I got to tell you, you start out at camp and you throw up this song. You throw out this game and you got the you got the too cool for school kids in the back of the high school camp at Lake Havasu. They're looking at this. I don't know if I'm singing this song. I don't know if I'm playing this game. There's nobody who's not into it, at least socially, at least on the outside. There's everybody's engaged by the end of it because there's a joy to be found together as God's people. Go over to third John. Look at how it begins. The greeting. Maybe you just skip over the greeting to get to the meat of it. If you do that in third John, it's greeting just a few verses and then final greeting. So you'll skip a good chunk of the letter. Uh, Verse two here. Third John two, beloved. I pray that all may go well with you, that you will have good soul and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul here. Right. Maybe we should start praying that for each other more and more, not just for good health, but good soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy, the writer of divine scripture says. Now, when he talks about his children walking in the truth, is he talking about his physical offspring or is he talking about 
the church that he helped to plant, the believers that got saved when he preached the gospel. Is he talking about his family or the church? He's talking about the church. And he's ready to say, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walking in the truth. This is the man who sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. This is the man who saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead and the tomb was empty and he was not there. This is the man who had the vision of the unveiled glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, there's no greater joy than to see people who I got to share the gospel with or encourage to see those people living for Jesus Christ. That's as good as it gets. Do you know the joy of seeing people that you've led to Christ or people you've encouraged walk in the truth? Or have you been so worried about your own walk that you're missing out on the joy of the people of Jesus Christ? Apparently, according to a man who knew a lot about Jesus Christ and who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he actually says the joy we're going to find in people being made disciples and hearing the report that they're staying faithful to putting their faith in Jesus Christ there will actually be no greater joy that you will experience in life. That's how John thought about it. So we need to find joy in the people of Jesus, of hearing about them and being with them. Now go back, because there's even more treasure in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. Go back. (coughs) And this is actually the most profound point of the entire evening. It's something he says about Timothy, and then something he says about Epaphroditus, and I really want you to consider these words carefully. Not like he's just throwing out some kind of greeting real quick, but that these are words that he wrote with great intention and were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look what it says here in verse 20 when he's describing Timothy. He says, I have no one like him. We looked at that earlier, but we didn't really focus on why there's no one like Timothy in Paul's ministry team that Paul has a relationship with. He says here in verse 20, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Here's what's unique about Timothy. Timothy is going to be genuine, legitimate, sincere, concerned, like to the point of like anxiety, to the point of like he's worried about you, not worried about himself, not worried about what's going to happen, not that kind of sinful anxiety, but really where you take other people's needs and you make them your own. You take other people's burdens and you put them on your own back. That's what Timothy's going to do. The reason I might send Timothy to you is because Timothy, he cares about other people in a way that's hard to find. In fact, I don't have anybody like Timothy who cares in that kind of a way. Then he says this, verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of who? Okay, pay attention here. Verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of who? Okay, but in the verse before, he said that Timothy would be genuinely concerned with Whose welfare? Jesus Christ's welfare? No, their welfare. Okay, so hold on. Let's think about this for a second. I'm going to send Timothy, maybe, because he'll really be genuinely concerned about you because the reason he's different is other people are only concerned about themselves, not the things of Jesus. What is he doing there? He's saying their their interests, their concerns, their welfare 
are the things of Jesus Christ. It's not like Timothy's over here living for Jesus and then Timothy's not going to be living for Jesus or he's going to do something different than live for Jesus and come and be concerned about you. No, being concerned about you are the things of Jesus Christ. Look what he says about Epaphroditus here in verse 30, the very last verse here. When he talks about him getting sick and he almost died. Look what he says. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. See how that happened there again? Did Epaphroditus go on a trip and get sick and bring that money to Paul? Was it for Paul or was it for Christ? Answer is yes. You see how Paul thinks here? Do you see what the Holy Spirit, the treasure that he's revealing to you is here? When you serve other people, you are serving Jesus. And if you want a good definition of serving Jesus, it's serving other people. Now, we often have a false dichotomy where we think of them as two different things. We think one is vertical and one is horizontal. It's saying something different here in our text. In fact, a lot of times, even the way the Bible gets translated into English gives us the impression that there's this kind of serving Jesus, like a worship kind, and then they're serving other people like that's something different than worshiping Jesus. Okay, watch, watch what happened. Go back to chapter 2, verse 17. I really need everybody to see this, okay? There's going to be a Greek word that's going to show up two different times. And it's the Greek word we get liturgies from. Liturgy. So liturgy would be like when you have your worship service and it has your rituals. It has the way that you conduct your service together. That would be the idea of liturgy, the way that we would worship God, how we would take it seriously, how we would arrange ourselves or conduct ourselves in the service of worship. Okay, well, look what it says here in chapter two, verse 17. It says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial liturgy or offering of your faith. Okay, so there it's referring to their life that they're giving to God. Like Romans 12, 1, that idea that I'm offering myself as a living sacrifice. When I hear that all that God's done for me, and God's done so much for us when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we failed to live, to die for the sin that we definitely did, so that we could receive the righteousness of Jesus and he would pay for all of our sins so we'd never have to be judged for it. And right there, when we get declared righteous because of what Jesus did on the cross, Jesus rises from the dead. So we have this new life, this eternal life, where we can now not only say no to sin, but we can actually walk in righteousness now by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can know we're going to heaven. God's done all of that for us. And when we see Jesus giving his life up for us, the only logical response, the only reasonable service of worship is to offer ourselves as sacrifices to Jesus. That's what it says here. We think, oh, yeah, I connect with that. You don't just worship on the on the weekend. You worship all the time as you give your life 
to Jesus. Worship isn't just singing praise songs. It's the giving of your heart. It's the giving of your life. Okay, now watch when the word liturgy also shows up back in verse 30. Now look at verse 30, okay? For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your liturgy to me. Now, that kind of sounds like a crazy statement. It almost sounds like Paul's saying in your worship, in your offering, in your sacrifice to me. It's the same exact word in the Greek, but in different contexts, it gets translated differently, which kind of leads to some of our maybe confusion. Offering, that sounds like worshiping God. Service, that sounds like doing something for somebody else. It's the same word. When you are serving other people, you are worshiping God. That is the work of Christ. We shouldn't think of them as two different things. Let's get this down for point number three. Serving others equals serving Jesus. Serving others equals serving Jesus. In fact, if you think that you have a life where you're serving Jesus, but you're not doing anything to give your life away to other people, to share the gospel with them, to meet practical needs for them, to build up the church as we all come together and use our gifts as one body to build everybody up. If you think you're serving Jesus without serving other people, you may not even be serving Jesus at all. It might actually be impossible for you to serve Jesus without passing it on to other people. If you know Jesus, if you know that he loves you, you will love others. And so if you're thinking, well, I'm good because I go and worship God and I got something going on between me and God, me and God's people, not so much. But me and God, we're good. What this is saying is that doesn't even make sense. That's a false dichotomy. You've separated two things that are natural together. It's not horizontal or vertical. It's both. That's how it works. The work of Christ involves telling people who don't know Jesus the gospel and serving to build up those who do know Jesus and meeting their practical physical needs and investing in them spiritually to encourage them in their faith. That is serving Jesus. Other people are required. So who are you serving? Who are you building up? See, today, today we are so messed up in our thinking that if we read this story of Epaphroditus and this guy went on a trip to go help Paul and he like got sick, we'd probably be thinking like Epaphroditus, man, you might be going a little too hard in ministry. You might be serving a little too much. You might need some more you time. I mean, this is getting pretty ridiculous if you're going so, so intense in your serving that you're getting sick and almost dying like Epaphroditus. Maybe you need to like pull back a little bit. That's how we would talk about it today. Like, oh, that guy, he's maybe serving too much at church. I mean, you hear people say stuff like, well, you got to be careful. You got to really balance your time. Too much serving for other people that could be unhealthy for you. You'll hear people say stuff like that today. Does Paul think that Epaphroditus coming to him and almost dying because he got sick? Does he in any way act like, yeah, that was a little over the top and this guy needs to ratchet it back a little bit? Or does he say that he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me? 
Does he act like this guy is a guy to be honored? This guy should be rejoiced in because this guy is giving his life away and it worships God. I don't think he's saying tone it down. I think he's saying Epaphroditus is an example. He's someone to be valued. He's someone to be rejoiced in. Turn with me to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. This is what Jesus says. Let's just go straight to him. He's the ultimate authority of heaven and earth. He's the one who established the church and gets to decide how it runs. Jesus is the one who's going to come back. He's the master. He's the Lord. You're the servant. If you're a believer here tonight, if you're someone who has put your faith in Jesus and confessed him to be Lord and believed that God raised him from the dead, the words you're hoping to hear at the end of your life are well done, good and faithful. Well, then he gets to decide what serving looks like, doesn't he? If he's the master, if he's the Lord, and you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, what kind of service does Jesus, the master, the Lord, the judge expect? He makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, a heading here called the final judgment. This is page 831. And this is talking about the end of all things, the return of Jesus Christ when the Son of Man comes riding on the clouds and every eye will see him. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What a thing that's going to be to behold the unveiling of the revelation of Jesus. And before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick. And you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. You did it to me. Want to know how much Jesus loves his people? How he loved them to the bloody end? How he purchased their souls with his righteous blood? You want to know how much Jesus loves his sheep? The good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. When you serve one of the people of Jesus, Jesus thinks you're doing it to him. There's no horizontal, vertical thing with Jesus Christ. You serving somebody? They're one of his people. They're even one of the least in the kingdom. You're doing it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. When you get to see people who are out there every day, sweating, every day working, no complaining, just so they can give Kip these kids some, some cold water, give them a meal, give them a fun game, I mean, people out there in the heat whipping kids around on inner tubes, throwing them up in the air, right? Serving the kids. Guarantee you, every single person that handed somebody some food, 
set up some game, threw some kids up in the air off of an inner tube. They did it unto Jesus Christ. That's what he says here. He says, when you serve other people, how important is that? Is that is that a little deal? Is that no big deal? Is that just something we do in our free time? If we have time to give to the church? He says, no, and that's that's how people he's saying that's the defining mark of the people who are the righteous ones who enter the kingdom for all of eternity. That's what they do as their spiritual act of worship. That's the righteous response to the gospel is you live for other people. See what he's doing here in Epaphroditus and Timothy and how he's talking about these guys is he's really now putting some meat on the bones of the command he gave us earlier. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility of mind, consider others as more significant than yourselves. Don't just look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we heard that weeks ago. And we talked about how you need to have less self-esteem and more serve-esteem. Has anything changed in your life since then? Are you serving anybody since then? Next time Camp Compass comes around, next time summer camp comes around, are you going to look for a way to serve or will you just hear another announcement and let it go on by? Do you serve people? What do you do? Service costs time. It costs money. It costs energy. It's giving things you will never get back. It's a sacrifice. It's an offering. It's worship. What are you doing to serve the least of these? Have you ever visited anybody in the hospital? You ever preached to anybody in a prison? You ever given to somebody who didn't have clothes or food? Then he says this in verse 30, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, I think we think things like this are simple. We think there's not a lot of treasure to be found in things like this. Things like being somebody who shows up at church a little bit early on purpose with the whole goal of greeting any stranger that might come in here to worship God with us, making them feel welcome, showing them hospitality, reaching out to somebody you don't know and saying, hey, I'm so-and-so, what's your name? It's good to see you here at church. And when you greet these strangers, one of the least of these, it's like you're greeting Jesus Christ himself. When you serve other people, you are serving Jesus, it is worship. And so what we have to do is we have to really evaluate what we're what we're learning in Philippians. I told you I was concerned when a lot of people said Philippians is my favorite book because I knew once we actually started going through it, it would expose how selfish we really are. Do you come to church for yourself or do you come to church to serve other people? 
That's, that's really the question here. Can you say that you worship Jesus, not just by coming here to sing songs to Him, or hear from His Word, or do acts of obedience in your own life? Can you say that you worship Jesus because you do it to the least of these, His people? See, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they were held up with honor and value because they served other people like they were serving the Lord himself. Let's pray that we will think that same way. And really, we got to evaluate ourselves. We really, we, I mean, I think Jesus is, is noble. Jesus sacrificed himself for you. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus left heaven on a seek and save mission for your soul. That stranger, that person you don't know sitting here tonight, that person in your fellowship group that always makes the quirky comments, you know who I'm talking about? That person, what have they ever done for you? And so you think, yeah, I'll give my life to Jesus. But I don't know about these other people. And you need to evaluate yourself based on what the Bible says. There's no giving your life to Jesus. Unless you're giving it to the least of his people. That's how we should evaluate ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven. God, we we need to get back to what it even means to be a Christian. That Jesus Christ, when he called those first disciples. When they left aside their nets and their fishing boats. He said, if anyone's going to come after me. He's going to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we forget where Jesus went. He went straight to suffering. He took our sins upon himself and he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve us. And somehow now, We think we're going to serve Jesus by serving ourselves. We don't think serving Jesus means serving other people. God, help us to see that the cross you're calling each and every one of us to bear is to risk our lives, to be willing to die, to give of ourselves until there's nothing left for the sake of other people. God, please open our eyes. Then when we're done with this service today, And we reach out to greet strangers and to welcome them in Jesus' name. It's we're doing it unto Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that you'll take us back to what it really means to be a Christian. That we would gladly give our lives away to follow Jesus Christ. That there's nothing greater than knowing Jesus Christ. That the greatest joy we will have will be to see people walking with Jesus Christ. And what a great day it will be when we all gather together, not here at church, but in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to worship Him, not by ourselves, but with those people that we got to serve here on planet Earth. So God, please remind us what it really means to follow Jesus Christ, that He came to serve us, and He calls us to serve others. We pray this in His name.